Good day and welcome to Theology in the Dirt. We make it our aim to practice our theology in the public square of our homes, our city, and our world. We welcome you today to Theology in the Dirt, the headquarters of Global Impact Restoration Rome, where we engage in addressing the foster and adoption care crisis in northwest Georgia, the state of Georgia, and the southeast, and put our theology into practice. My name is Mitchell Jolly, and you are Chris Hayes. What's up, guys? Thanks for listening to Theology in the Dirt. We're always Happy to come to you and welcome you into our time together where we make it our aim to wrestle around with our issues in our day. And as we do that, we're going to jump into some news. Chris, um, I have two news stories, and I'm just going to pull one. They're both sports personality related. Um, but Ivan Provorov, oh yeah, totally just wrecked that. It was that or Tony Dungy. I'm going to go with Ivan uh, Provorov. Ivan Provorov, uh, NHL um, player, refused. Said he wasn't going to wear the LGBTQ plus jersey uh, that was league wide. They're going to practice jersey or warm up jersey for the. Uh, for their warm-up, he refused to do it. And his reasoning was because as a Russian Orthodox, that lifestyle conflicted with his worldview, what he believed. And he believed he has a right to not wear it and and compromise his values. And amen, good job for him because he's also free to make a choice too. He doesn't have to advocate for things his conscience doesn't agree with or his religious framework doesn't agree with. And he's been absolutely crucified. Um, and, and so what I find interesting in that story is that um, – Here's a reality. And just go ahead and jump to the conclusion. Um, human sexuality is a religious belief. You can divorce it all you want to from um, a Christian worldview or a Christian framework, but it is a religious view. And as soon as you forget it's a religious view and adopt it as your framework of thinking, if someone does something that's contrary to it, you're going to fight and so here's a guy who says, I don't agree with that. And so I shouldn't be mandated to put it on me as though I do agree with that. It conflicts with what I believe, so therefore I'm not going to do it. And I've, I call that freedom. Yeah. Um, and it's not something he should be absolutely wrecked over the coals for. So props to this guy for standing up. Yeah, I, we man, we see this so many times with so many things, but especially on that issue, it's like if you – We've got to this place in the world where if you have a difference of opinion about something that everyone feels like you should believe, right. then you not only – it's not a disagreement. You reject anyone who who celebrates that, and that's so wrong, right. and it's so messed up. But what I, I've actually – I saw that story this week. I've actually seen a lot of people who are – well, I've seen a lot of gay people actually defend him, which I thought was pretty cool. That is cool. Um, be, because a lot of them saying like, well, I probably wouldn't want to wear that either. Like, they're, they're, I think a lot of the people in that community are getting tired of a lot of the things that are happening in that, and I'm using quotes, community, when it comes to things like that. It's yeah. like, if you don't wear this rainbow flag, then you hate gay people. And I'm like, no. Right. Like, what? It's the same thing that happened to Dan Cathy a few years ago, you know, former CEO of Chick fil A, right. who said, I believe in the biblical definition of marriage between man and woman. If anybody knows Dan Cathy, Cathy he doesn't hate anybody. No. <laughs> and just, but again, it's now people won't go to Chick Fil A because Chick Fil A hates gays. And I'm like, there are multiple, not only gay employees, but operators of Chick Fil A restaurants, right? Who are kind, generous, giving people. And so we've got to stop putting everybody in this bubble of like, you either not just believe this, but openly in front of everybody. Yeah. Praise this, and, you, yeah. and I'm glad you said religious because it totally is. It is. It's a secular. It's a secular religious ideology, and um, and it's being propagated, evangelized. People are being evangelized with the worldview, and if you don't agree with it, um, they're being persecuted. Um, and and it's no different than persecuting someone for a failure to believe in Islam or Christianity or Judaism. It's the same. Same. It's a religious ideology. It it has a framework or how it sees humanity and sexuality, um, and. And and I have there's all kinds of reasons why 
uh, that'll actually be something we'll address later uh, on a series that we're going to be talking about. But just want to pop that news out there. Uh, good for this this guy for standing up and um, taking the heat. Absolutely. I've just got a quick one this week. I um, feel like it was a slower news kind of week or so the past week, but I think we're com- you know we're coming out of that pandemic still, and I think we're starting to see some of the impacts of that, both positive and negative. And one of the things we're seeing now is, particularly with tech companies, these mass layoffs are coming. So. Google CEO announced last week that the company's planning to lay off 12,000 people um, slashing jobs after, because all those, these big tech companies had this huge expansion and added all these things during the pandemic because they were benefiting off of it, which is fine. I don't think it's not wrong to, for your business, especially if it's a tech business to do well. Um, But the problem is now you made all these hires, you added all these programs and now things are kind of, I hate to say back to normal, but we'll we'll use that for today's sake and purpose. And so that's that combines with uh, Microsoft, who also recently laid off a bunch of folks, um, over close to ten thousand workers. Amazon announced it would cut eighteen thousand jobs. Uh, Salesforce plans to lay off ten percent of its staff. And so we're starting to see more and more of these huge tech problems. And this is, I mean, McDonald's is doing the same thing. They're not even a tech company. And so just you know, beware growing too fast and expanding too quickly. Because it can often have a negative effect as well. Because yeah. as soon as as soon as something happens, retracting, um, that's difficult. Yeah, and and we're starting to see probably economically. Boy, I, I have a minor in economics, business and economics, and uh, I'm fascinated by economics. And with a fiat currency like we currently have, which is you know, it's it's, I don't think it's debatable whether or not our currency is backed with actual physical gold. We have a fiat currency, which basically is backed by reputation, what somebody says it's worth. Um, and, and in a place where um, debt is actually being debated on national debt is um, whether it's actually uh, has an effect because it's debt on a currency. Debt with a currency doesn't actually have a backing. So it's just kind of what you say it is. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and, and the whole blue argument the democrat argument is debt's really not that big of a deal it's not going to affect anything um but what you're seeing is inflation inflation's rampant i mean it's absolutely insane and um and because of that it's it's creating some issues so with with these companies in a place where they're having to start thinking about backing off i mean you're talking about rising prices decreasing jobs that's not a pretty scenario uh, economically for, for the future. So, um, a lot to keep eyes on. And and that's actually the Christian and money economics. How does a Christian approach a system, uh, of economics? Because economics, uh, I mean, it's, it matters. So there's all kinds of issues we can wrestle around with. That's what we want to do. It's called theology in the dirt. So there's some news for you guys. So it's now time to get to the show. What an honor to have Voice with us in the studio every week. We appreciate you, Voice, and your awesome job of introducing Theology in the Dirt. Well, today we're going we're gonna to start a series of podcasts of Theology in the Dirt where we're going to talk about the Christian life. And, uh, and, and what that's going to look like is we're going to talk about the Christian life. That's the big, big banner. I'm just going to sit over it. And we're going to talk about things like, uh, for example, the Christian and sexuality, the Christian and economics. Um, the Christian and political systems, the Christian and the spiritual world. So we've got a list of things, and we're keep adding to it. It's theology in the dirt, and so we want to practice our theology at home and, and in our city and in our world. And so these issues are all around us, so we want to talk about them. And so try to apply uh, a framework to those. Um, for me today, Chris and I both have some different things we want to bring to the table to set it up. We're not going to talk about a particular issue, but some presuppositions, um, some things we have in place, and some takeaways that are a result of that. So Chris, I'll give you the floor first, give you an opportunity to share some of some of your thoughts. Uh, and, and then I'll, I'll give you my presuppositions and that'll, that'll lay the framework 
for us going forward and for folks listening of how we want to approach these issues. Yeah, I'm really excited to dive into this uh, topic. It's kind of hard to say because it's a big series and a big banner, but I really think this is lies at the crux of what theology in the dirt is all about. Is you know how do we apply what we learn from the scriptures and from the theological truths that we find into our lives? And honestly, I think this day and time is probably the hardest time to live as a Christian. And, and even just our news, we talk about how it's hard to navigate some of these things. So we're going to dive into some of those difficult topics over the next several weeks. Um, when I personally think about the Christian life, uh, and there's lots of scripture references to how to live and what to do, but I, for me, I'm drawn to Romans 12. I think that's just one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture, uh, especially the first two verses where Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I feel like, and, and you know, then he goes on to talk about several things. So kind of real quick breakdown of Romans 12. I, there's basically four uh, things, four main themes that I pulled out of there that I feel like help set us up for living the Christian life. And um, we need to be looking at the manual. That's why we call it the manual at Three Rivers Church, right? It's right. This is given by God directions on how and guidance on how to live. And so um, there's four quick themes here. Uh, the first one is worship. You know, he starts off the chapter by calling us to be a sacrifice, uh, and that is our worship. And we can't do that by conforming to the world. Uh, secondly, purpose and gifts. Uh, we have to know what our purpose is mm. and what our gifts are. Uh, yeah. They're given to us from the Lord and to be used to bring glory to him. Um, there's also a hint of hint in here of like stay in your lane kind of thing. Uh, you know, it's like if it's serving the serve, we're reminded right. if we're a part of a body that all parts need to use their gifts according to what we've been given. Mm. So we don't need to be wasting our time with things that are not connected to our purpose and gifts. Mm. And I feel like sometimes we do that. And then we, you know, we're, if we go over here trying to focus on the left leg and we're the right arm, then mm. we forget to do what we're supposed to do. Right. That's got to be our focus and our, our priority there. Mm. Um, the third theme, love others and put them first. And we see this numerous times in the passage where Paul writes about considering others better than ourselves. Let our love be genuine, live in harmony with one another and so on. Just as Jesus commanded us to love the Lord and to love others, we see that there. And then lastly, in this passage, serve. Uh, serve the Lord and serve each other. I feel like we understand this: the love part, the serve part comes pretty naturally right? when we kind of put others ahead of ourselves and their needs, and we put that focus on there. We're going to want to serve. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of my big portion there, how to be accomplished these things uh, by the Spirit. You know, Galatians 5, great word on that, right? And verse 16 walk by the spirit. Um, and in verse 18, be led by the spirit in verse 22, bear the fruit of the spirit. And in verse 25, keep in step with the spirit. And so, uh, we've simply got to listen and obey. And this will be kind of my last point here and I'll turn it back over to you. But, um, C.S. Lewis reminds us so beautifully, uh, in his book, the weight of glory, we are far too easily pleased. Mm. Um, and I think that's just a good reminder here. We get easily distracted, far too easily influenced and far too easily knocked off of balance. And, that's why I love the imagery in, in passages like Hebrews 12, where it talks about sin entangling us or, um, mm. you know, having to uh, lay aside every weight. I kind of picture this big net, right? We get tangled up in our just the distractions of the world, yeah. the things that are state, they just influence us so easily. They get us angry or they get us, even sometimes in a good thing, and passionate about something that's not of Him. And then that begins to depict how we live our Christian life out. And we have to lay those aside. And it's a struggle, right? You can't, if you've ever been caught in the net, or something like that. Like you don't, it's not just as simple as be gone. Like you've got to kind of wrestle with it because it's, it forms to you. And I feel like that's goes back to that Romans 12 too. Yeah. When you are living by worldly standards, you tend to conform to it. Yeah. You become to look like it and you smell like it. You taste like it. You sound like it. Mm. And, but the, but the opposite of that is also true. Um, you know, in John 15, when Jesus talks about abiding in me, um, yeah, by this, my father's glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Yeah. So when, on the flip side of that is when we conform ourselves to what the scripture says and what Jesus lived and how he lived, um, we begin to sound like him. We begin to look like mm. him. We get to be, we begin to be his hands and feet. And I feel like as we go through this, all these topics about the Christian life, yeah. that's what we've got to do. And they, they can't coexist. Right. You can't be conformed by the world and conformed by Christ. Right. You can't serve two masters. Yeah, there's an inevitable conflict 
Yeah. Like it, it, it's inevitable. I, I think this picture, somehow this culturally false picture of the Christian and Jesus that is never in conflict with the world has to somehow die because the truth of the matter is because of the curse of sin uh, and God's promise to redeem it, the first gospel preached in the Bible is Genesis 3.15, and it is conflicting. It is the the heel of the promised one crushing the head of the serpent who's the propagator of the lies. And there's a wounding on the heel. The strikes at the heel and wounds the heel, but the heel crushes the head of the serpent. So there, there's in that, first of all, the promise that that evil will be crushed. Yeah. Secondly, there's the promise that there will be conflict between, between good and evil. And, and, and then there's the, the promise that, uh, that it's going to hurt the one who crushes. And so when the Lord comes and teaches what he teaches, he promises us that, that it's going to be costly. It, so it's not like it's a surprise. He's assuming we've read our Bibles. We know what it says. And, so, and then he models the cost for us. And and so I I think um, I think there's a, this idea that we're to be meek. Hear this rightly, not in the way Jesus taught meekness in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus taught us to be meek. He taught us to be meek. But meek is strength under control, not meek culturally defined as saying nothing, sitting in a corner, um, pleasant always, and with a smile on our face and nothing to say just receiving, just constantly receiving whatever comes. That is not what meek means. So when I say not meek, I mean meek the way culture defines meek. But meek in the way Jesus defines meek uh, is is bold without losing our minds. In fact, the Proverbs tell us uh, only a fool gives full vent to his anger, which means uh, a wise person gives some vent to their anger. Yeah. There is righteous anger, and there's a place for it to be expressed. Jesus did it. Matthew 23. In fact, this morning, my gospel, my New Testament reading was Matthew 23. Jesus done, and he absolutely loses his mind under control on them, and, and he screams at them. It's exclamation points. There's a place for confrontation with dark forces. I love, I love that you bring up Romans 12 because um, verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, detest evil cling to what is good. Yeah. I, I mean, how many people have in the framework of their worldview to detest certain things? Well, and if you detest something, you're not just staying quiet about it. That's right. You know, that's right. And to detest evil is love. And I think that's the other component. I think probably worth us exploring at some point is the Christian and love. Cause we talk about this. Some at our churches, cause we've experienced the confrontation of defining love. Is it loving to deal with sin? Well, some people say no. You should just grace, grace, grace means let it go. Grace means pretend it didn't happen, and that's nowhere in the Bible. Yeah. God doesn't pretend sin didn't happen. He executes His Son on a Roman cross to pay for my sin. Mm-hmm. That's not pretending it didn't happen. That's there's a price to be paid, and Jesus paid it. But that doesn't mean I get to walk away. God doesn't live with rose-colored glasses. There's a price to be paid for sin. The wages of sin is death. There are consequences that come from that. And so love is not withholding consequences. It's detesting evil and clinging to the good, mm-hmm. which means sometimes you got to grasp the good and cut people out of the net of evil. And and so Romans 12 is an ethical framework for Christians that's absolutely beautiful and 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 worth worth some preaching. Definitely. I you know you you've been you've been white water rafting yeah. before. Oh, yeah. I, I like this imagery here because I think it helps add to what you were saying. You know, there are times when you're white water rafting where your instructors like just hold your paddle, right? You've got to cruise, yeah. let the river take you where it's going to take you. So you're kind of, it's okay to be silent and calm there. But there's a lot of times when you're talking about whitewater rafting that you've got to paddle and he's screaming at you, paddle, 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 and as hard yeah. as you can. And if you don't, you're going to be capsized. You're yeah. going to be taken over by the rapids. And I feel like that's the same way in the Christian life. Yeah, there are times where it's best to just float along and yeah. to not be, you know, no, don't, don't be trying to row the boat, right? But there are also times if you don't, then you're going to just be swept in with everything else. That's right. And hey, a little free advertisement. If you like to paddle the river, you go to Carolina uh, up in uh, Nantahala Gorge and request Gabriel Jolly. Yeah, He's a fantastic river guide on the Nantahala River. It's my son, my oldest, uh, this bearded, big, gospel-preaching, <laughs> gospel-loving 
um, education major, offensive coordinator, football coach can take you down the Nantahala River, and he will do that with you. He'll tell you, dig, 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 right side paddle, left side paddle, all still. So that's a great illustration in my mind went to watch him. Former podcast guest as well. So yes. you can go back and listen to that that's episode exactly with Gabe right. Jolly. That's right. That's Shout right. Out. So I could not help but when you said paddle, I was seeing my, my son paddling the, the Nantahala River. Um, so I want to lay out some presuppositions that I have. When I'm talking yeah. about the Christian uh, and these issues um, in the Christian life, um, I have I have a set of five presuppositions, and there are more, but for the sake of brevity, I think it's just good to, to you know, my gosh, the world is worthy of discussion, all of it, every molecule of it. So there's an infinite amount of information out there that we can discuss. But I just give for five, uh, five presuppositions. First one for me is the Christian belongs in the public square and should be able to be there. Um, I do not believe, and, and there's an eschatology that drives this, and that, that'll be another thing. We can talk about the Christian and the end. What is eschatology? But the Christian belongs in the public square. God has not created us and designed us to huddle and remain isolated from the evil world. Uh, and when I say world, that needs to be defined. I don't mean creation. I mean the world system that, that the John defines in first John um, as the lust of flesh, the lust of eyes and the pride in life. And chapter five, verse 19, this is operated by Satan and those evil forces. We are to function outside in creation that is being influenced by that system and be actively combating it. And if all we do is hang out in Bible studies, we're never, ever, ever dealing with the ideologies that are pillaging all of creation and continuing to propagate the lies of Eden. So the Christian belongs in the public square. So that's presupposition number one. If we are not in the public square, if we're not using our jobs, if we're not using our platforms, if we're not intentionally engaging people, it's like John Tyson said, and I said it in the sermon last week, if we feel and believe that that we should be quiet about Jesus or are quiet about Jesus for fear of offending someone or are quiet about Jesus in our worldview because we don't want to rock the boat, we have actively been discipled by the world. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and Tyson's not saying, and I'm not saying be a jerk. Far from it. Right. But if we are fearful of our ideology that the Bible says is actually full of health and life, creating a scenario that's uncomfortable and therefore withhold it, we've been discipled by the world. And and so we belong in the public square. We're supposed to be in the public square. We're not supposed to be in Bible study all the time. We're not supposed to be in, in huddles around Christians all the time. We are to be salt and light. Salt only works when it gets on something that's unsalty. Light only works when it lights up the darkness. Yeah. So we belong in the public square. Um, number two, for me... The meta narrative of the whole story of the Bible is my determiner of meaning. This is going to lead to my um, uh, third and fourth presupposition, but this one's huge for me. Um, meta narratives are big, and um, meta narratives are stories that are the framework of, of reality for people. So that's what a meta narrative is it's a narrative that gives meaning to every other tiny narrative. Um, and if if you struggle with that and don't know, just go Google meta narrative and get a technical definition of meta narrative. But it's the story, the big overarching huge umbrella that gives meaning to everything underneath it. Uh, and for the Christian, that's we 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 use these four words to define that meta narrative for our people in our church: creation, uh, fall, redemption, restoration. Those four things form the framework of a meta narrative. Um, and, and, and what that meta narrative tells us is there is a creation. There was nothing except God, and there was something. And this meta narrative tells us how we got all of that something, and it tells us who created it. So we live in a world that's clearly here. It came from somewhere, um, and, and it answers questions for us like, is it eternal or is it time stamped? Did it begin? So creation. There's a biblical framework for that. The Bible teaches us about creation. Um, it tells us who did it, what it was for, um, what it means, uh, what its intent is, what it's there for. But it, but it it doesn't take us long uh, time living to realize something's not right. Something's broke. Mm-hmm. Um, and this framework, fall, 
tells us what happened. It answers the question, how did this happen? Why did it happen? And what's its source? Um, redemption tells us the that it's going to be fixed. It tells us how it's going to be fixed. It tells us who's going to fix it. Yeah. Um, and then restoration tells us that he's not going to leave it in a broken state. He's going to renew it. He's going to make it right. He's going to set things back in order. And so creation, fall, redemption, restoration is the big framework that answers all those questions. And for us, the Bible gives us that. So that's a meta narrative. So when I talk about my life, my life is a narrative. Your life is a narrative. And its meaning is found in connecting it to that meta narrative of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Who am I? Who created me? What am I here for? Um, We've got to answer those questions. And we can answer those questions by connecting them to the meta narrative. Man, we have purpose. Um, We have direction. Man, that's huge. That's massive. Um, and for people who are missing that meta narrative, here's what humans do: they create their own na- narratives. Yeah. You have to create a meta narrative. The LGBTQ plus movement is a religious system that stems from a meta narrative of human sexuality of men and women. And when you divorce that from the meta narrative of what God says a meta narrative is, you can create whatever you want. You you can make any story you want even though it doesn't even make sense. There are no connecting lines. You just make up whatever you want. And so this is self-made religion is what happens when you create an ideology and then try to connect it to something above it. And you start drawing lines. And so anyway, that's probably more philosophical, more theological than anybody (laughs) wanted to get, but that's reality. That's why meta narrative is important. Um, and, And hopefully for us, people will begin to question like, what is my meta narrative? I mean, is my meta narrative God's meta narrative? If not, what is my meta narrative? What is informing my belief system? Yeah. Um, third for me is a biblical theological approach will determine how I use verses in the Bible. So biblical theological versus um, proof texting. A proof text would be, oh, let me take this one verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Man, you can squat that 350 because Jesus is there. Well, maybe. <laughs> uh, not quite what that means. Right. A biblical theological perspective is, what is the author's intent? Informed by the Holy Spirit who's inspiring them to write connected to the reality of what Jesus taught it was there for in the first place in in Luke chapter 24. So biblical theological perspective would read the law, the Ten Commandments, and not start with an ethical framework, but start with the understanding of why is the Holy Spirit giving Moses these ten laws as the basis of civil society rooted in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, buried, risen, ascended. So I'm, I'm coming with those, I'm coming with that. What does this tell us about God? What does it tell us about salvation? What does it tell us about who we are before I get to its application in civil society? Does that make sense? It does. Well, the importance of context, context within yes. that actual part of the scripture, but also what is its context within the meta narrative? Yes. And so you've got to understand both. It's why religions have been formed that are not truth. It's why we, people yes. continue to combat. Well, Jesus doesn't say, do not abort babies. Well, that's <laughs> right. like. Right, it's but, not but, written but in the Bible. But he kind of does. He doesn't use that exact word, right. um, and and that's that's become a new sweeping thing too. It's here's how we'll combat Christians: is we will yeah. say, well, it doesn't specifically say that. Yeah, and I'm like, that sounds awful, like a certain character in Genesis to me. Did like, God is that say really what he said? Right, people oh. people put words in Jesus' mouth all day long because they don't have a chapter and a verse in the Bible. Yeah, and and. It's blasphemy. It's heresy. And heresy is a heavy charge. I don't throw that word around a lot. It's too easy to throw around for some people. It's heresy when you start putting words in Jesus' mouth he never intended. It's sin. It's demonic. Uh, It's flat-out satanic. And so we're going to come at what does this mean? What does it mean? Because the context is huge. But but your meta-narrative gives you context. 
Because it's never creation divorced from restoration. Like creation and restoration go hand in hand, it's, which is why for, for many Christians who don't have a concept of taking care of creation, they're wrong. Like Christians who find a political position that is okay with pillaging created order does not have a coherent meta narrative in place. God gave us creation to steward, not to pillage. Which which means uh, it is innately good. Conservation is good. Yeah. Keeping things clean is good. Because my my understanding of creation is connected to the restoration. Because creation tells us who we are in relation to creation. You see, it's a comprehensive yeah. worldview, and so I, I think for a lot of Christians, it's just not in place. Um, so anyway, biblical theological approach. Number four, uh, personally, I'm not into theonomy. I know there are people who are. Um, so I won't use the law of the Old Testament that way when referencing the law of the Old Testament. Now, the question is, what is theonomy? Theonomy, two words, combines compound word, theos, God, nomos, law, so the law of God. And it's a hypothetical Christian form of government in which society is ruled by divine law. Theonomists would hold that divine law, particularly the judicial laws of the Old Testament, should be observed by modern societies. There are actually branches inside Christian theology who hold to a belief that the laws that's written in the Old Testament should be the civil law for societies today. I'm not a theonomist. Um, the law, and I think Galatians 3.24 is, is, is a... The whole book of Galatians, A. Yeah. But B, 324 doesn't get any more explicit in stating the purpose of the law. This is a great question to ask folks. What is, what's the purpose in the law? Why God give us a law? And, and that can stump, stump folks. Like, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, it's a good question. So what is the purpose of the law? Galatians 324 does as close a job of fully summarizing it as I, I think is there. Uh, it says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. I think the NASB translates it, the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. So the law is there as an instrument to point us to our need for Jesus as the Savior. So the law is not there primarily as an ethical code for governing people. It, it is there for that, but it's not its primary purpose. So we're talking primary, secondary tertiary purposes. And so if the law's purpose is to lead me to Jesus, then its purpose is not to govern all societies. And and a perfect example, this is, um, parents, if you're letting your kids listen to this one, probably pull them away from this right here at this point, but there's a really weird section um, when a man is um, jealous. He's not sure what's going on with his wife. There's a law in place for the priest to test for faithfulness. It's funky. Now, if you're a theonomist, my question to theonomist is, hey, you're going to do that one? Like, you're going to practice that? And who does that? Like, who is going to be the executor of that standard? Right. Um, and, and, and so when it comes to ethics and morality, I'm not a theonomist. I'm I think natural law is reality because all creation is God's. Uh, I don't think natural revelation reveals. I don't think natural revelation can save anybody. Romans 1 is clear about that. Like you can't look at a tree, reason your way to God, and be saved from the tree. Uh, nah, it's not going to happen. Man's tendency, Romans 1, is to make idols out of the tree, mm. not to be saved by the tree. But there is in natural revelation there's the revelation of the fact that there's a God. And Romans 1, Paul's very clear, that's enough to hold us accountable, not save us. And so there's enough in revelation in creation for us to know there are things that are right and wrong. Yeah. Um, biology teaches us that male and female is the only way to propagate a species. It just kind of is what it is. And so I don't even need a Bible to tell me that you need a male and a female to have the same kind. Make sense? Yeah. So that's natural law. So, <clears throat> pardon me. So I'm not a theonomist. I'm not going to use the law uh, believing it should be the constitution of every country on the face of the planet. Um, I hope that makes sense. Probably offend some people because I, I, I don't know. 
but I'm not a theonomist. And so if you want to be a theonomist, that's okay. Um, we can debate the, the use of that. And then finally, um, sola scriptura, not solo scriptura. Um, and this is really related to what I just said also. The Bible is the only inerrant authoritative rule for knowing God, knowing who we are, knowing how to be saved, and knowing how we're to live. Um, but the Bible doesn't address everything, and you address this, Chris. The Bible never tells us Jesus said, thou shalt not murder babies in abortion. doesn't say that. Um, so the Bible teaches us a framework, a meta narrative. It answers all the questions, the basic questions of life, from which we then derive in its created order truths. Meaning, just because the Bible doesn't say it explicitly doesn't mean it's not so. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, for instance, there are people who fight back against what we do in, in counseling, particularly with trauma, TBRI, because they can't find Bible verses to justify trauma-based counseling. And, and it creates a whole branch of counseling called Nuthetic Counseling, which just uses the Bible as a counseling tool. I would argue that is completely out of bounds. The Bible is not written to be a counseling tool. Um, and then to ignore brain science that tells us the effects of trauma on the human brain is to ignore natural reality that God created. And it's a failure to study the effects of sin on humanity. And so when I say sola scriptura, I mean the good reformational, the Bible alone tells us who God is, who we are, our place in all of it. But not solo scriptura in that I need a Bible verse to point it out to me so I can believe it. Does that make sense? It does. I, I think it kind of goes in hand in hand, and we might hit on this one of these topics as well. But it's like saying when people say, you know, we ignore science, trust the Bible, and I'm like, but the, but the Lord created science too. We are we are right. scientific beings by creation, and so yeah. it, it, the problem is applying the science correctly and not creating new science. Because if your meta narrative is something other than God's meta narrative, you will be a scientist and you'll draw the wrong conclusions because you're asking the wrong. Yeah questions to me science and specifically when we talk about trauma and what we can get into that later i won't dive into too much but when i talk about the brain and the impact of the brain all it does is make me more in awe of the creator yeah not because trauma is a good thing or it does good things but because of the healing that can happen after very very deep hurt yeah and so that we we can't just use here's some bible verses the same thing right now with the church and mental health we talked about this before that's right you can't just tell someone to you know someone's not being a they're 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 not a bad Christian if they have mental health issues. Yeah, that's right. Some people are born with them. Sometimes they develop because of circumstances or experience uh, or trauma. Yeah. But and 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 I think that's an area too. We've got to be able to say, okay, we can look at that through a scripture lens. Mm -hmm. But the Bible is not a, created to be a tool to help someone get through their mental health. Yeah. We can use it to help gain knowledge on certain things. It's not that we should ignore it. Right. That's not what we're saying, but we're just saying that's yeah. not its intended purpose. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Anybody who knows us knows that we push hard Bible reading, push it hard, push Bible study. You're a saint. You're a priest of the Lord. You have the Holy Spirit. You ought to be reading your Bible. I think every Christian, if you've been a Christian for more than five months, you've been a Christian for a year, you need to have read your Bible through one time. And for every year you've been a Christian, you need to have read your Bible through that many that many times. We, I, I, the Bible doesn't say that, but that's the only way to know what the Bible says is to actually read the darn thing. So we believe people should be reading their Bibles. We believe they should use them properly, meaning the Bible doesn't specifically speak to brain science. It does tell us who God is and what creation is and that we're stewards over it. And as a steward over creation, if I'm gifted medically, I ought to know how the daggum brain works. Yeah. And and if I learn how the brain works, then I start drawing some metaphysical conclusions. Number one, the mind of a man is not the brain. And the mind is a supernatural created reality um, that inhabits a body that God created, intermeshed somehow. Um, and and I need to figure all that works together. And there's no Bible verse that teaches that. It's a it's a scientific study. And all good science ought to be the study of creation. 
connected to its creator. Uh, that's good science. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so we're going to be sola scriptura, not solo scriptura. And so if it's true, if it's just true, like what I find interesting is like, and, and people do this stuff, man, this is crazy. Um, gravity's basic 9.8 meters per second squared. That's generally kind of understood to be what gravity. Like if you drop something, it's going to fall at 9.8 meters per second squared. There, there are people who try to use numerology, which by the way, please don't try to read things into numbers in the Bible. Like just don't do it. But people try to like, so they discover, oh, science is, gravity is 9.8 meters per second squared. And they go to the Bible and start playing games with scripture to try to find somehow the Bible saying that gravity is 9.8 meters per second squared. So like, uh, like in the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel, they're, uh, point, uh, eight things. And it's over in the other thing in that other book where it's like, see, God talks about seconds. And so see 9.8 seconds meters. I don't know where the meters came from, but it's see, it's right there in the Bible. I'm like, no man, don't, that's so stupid. Don't do stuff like that. If it's true, we can measure it in creation. We can observe it. And it's repeated over and over and over again. It's just true. And it's okay that it's true. It doesn't have to be written in a chapter and verse in the Bible for it to be true. And so, and by the way, by the way, when you observe reality and it starts to contradict with modern science, modern science is wrong. Because science can be uh, influenced with a poor meta narrative mm-hmm. or an agenda. People say, follow the science. Well, if you follow the science of certain things going on today, uh, you're pushing a political ideology, not actual medical health. I feel like that's happened in a pretty big way the last few years. I I can't put my finger on it. Something (laughs) big happened in the science (laughs) Yes. wasn't always there. Something big (laughs) happened in the science world, and, and, uh, and there are all kinds of nefarious things, right? And so just observe reality, man. That's part of living in the public square. Part of the Christian's job is to be intelligent enough to function in the public square. And I don't mean book smart. Right. I'm not talking about degrees. I'm just observational realities, man. Look at stuff. Look at what repeats. Look when it happens over and over and over again. Like it's just observing patterns. This is one of the beautiful things about education, little ones, you know, learning patterns. I love elementary school teachers teach patterns because when you start learning patterns, you're you're well on your way to being a good critical thinker. Yeah. And so you don't need a degree for that. Just observe, man. Some of the smartest people in history are people without degrees. They just paid attention to their world. And so those are those are my presuppositions and um I hope I didn't lose anybody. I hope that wasn't too heady, but that's out of the mind of Mitchell Jolly uh, because I live in the public square um, and I have to deal in these things. I'm, I'm going to leave this podcast and I'm going to teach a room full of people on structure, nurture differences and, and raising kids with a traumatic background. And so I'm going to a room full of people who won't agree with my foundational presuppositions. Um, they're going to be from all over the state of Georgia, from various agencies, from various worldviews. And I get to stand in that room and talk about my framework and then teach how these things function out of created order from a perspective of a Christian. And so I have to face questions. So I'm I'm not just Mr. Super Intelligent. It's just I get you get beat up enough and ask enough questions, you better have some answers. Yeah. And you better use your Bible to get them if you're a Christian. And so that, those are my presuppositions. I'll shut up. I've talked a lot. No, you're fine. I just I wanted to kind of wrap up today with uh, it's hard sometimes to get the right topic or right title of a section. So I'm calling this my five warnings and encouragements. I love so it. I've got five don't statements, but followed up each of those with an encouragement for you as we dive into the Christian life, as we're trying to live this out every day, understanding it's difficult. Right. And um, but there are some things that I hope will be encouraging and a good reminders for you. So number one. Don't live for God as a form of paying him back or trying to gain good favor. Um, we talked about living for God before, and I think it's easy to try to live out this obligation, right, or this form of repaying back. You are a son or daughter of the king. You cannot pay him back, uh, and to do so dilutes the power of his grace in your life. Mm. Uh, his grace is enough. His payment was enough. He did it once and will not have to do it again. And likewise, you can't gain any favor or avoid any hardship mm. by how you live. 
Yeah. Um, John Piper says, trusting in future grace is the enabling strength of our obedience. The more we trust in future grace, the more we give God the opportunity in our lives to show the glory of his inexhaustible grace. Mm. And I love that word, inexhaustible. Mm. It can't run out. It can't be depleted because that payment was enough. Like you said, there's payment for sin because sin requires yeah. um, something, right? There, yeah. there, there's a, a result of that, and the result is death, and Jesus paid that debt. I think Piper said you you glorify the fullness and inexhaustibility of a spring by drinking from it liberally, not rationing it. Hmm. He said the inexhaustible grace of God is you, you, you just continually receive it. You don't try to ration it. You just drink it in. And it and it glorifies his inexhaustible nature of the living water. So yeah, right. that's that's good stuff, man. And that's that's freedom not to live as you want, but freedom to live knowing that I don't have to achieve something or I don't have to be going towards to try to receive something. Mm. Uh number two, don't minimize little sins. Uh sin is the enemy and sin is like an avalanche. It may start as something small, but the more you allow it to gain momentum, the more you brush it off as nothing you're quickly consumed, rolled up, and caught in a devastating avalanche and downslide that is hard to overcome. So mm. call out sin in your life and have a sense of urgency to deplete it from your life. It goes back to what I was talking about earlier, that net, that that entanglement. Like the more you get tangled up in there, the harder it is to come out. Mm. Now there is grace and forgiveness for that, and there's yeah. mercy that will help you out. But it's hard to live a Christian life. It's hard to have that impact on others if you're completely entangled up in what you mm. feel like is you know, not that big of a deal. Yeah, that's a good word. Uh, number three, don't live in isolation. Uh, we're, we are created for community. Uh, you cannot be as disciples without ever leaving your bubble of safety. If comfort is your goal, you'll miss out on a lot. So uh, going back to what you said earlier, I think there's a balance here. There, there's Yes, we have to live in the world, but also be at church, right? Yeah. Serve, be there, serve, be around people of God, and then engage your domain. Yeah. Uh, you know, I like to talk in visuals and stuff sometimes. So I, yeah. I picture um, we have a Roomba. I don't use it as much anymore, but if you don't know what yeah. a Roomba is, it's a, like a robot vacuum, right? And a robot vacuum, you can set it, and it goes around and vacuums your house. But right, it's on a battery. Eventually, it has to return back to its home to be recharged, or it, it gets stuck out right. there, and it gets it doesn't serve its purpose. And so likewise, I feel like we've got if you're out pouring out our ourselves in the world, but we don't come back to recharge, right? We don't come back to the yeah. scripture. We don't come back to the people of God to be around that community because the world is dark yeah, and it's draining and That's it's right. difficult. And so you've got to have that balance between both. Don't live isolated. Uh, you'll be consumed. And, and it will eventually begin to disciple you. Even the, the, the most astute Christian can be discipled by the world by not being properly engaged in, in fellowship because I need my brothers to knock off the rough edges of my own leftover flesh, but also of dwelling among and, and finding places where I succumb to the world. Yeah. And, and I need to be sharpened to get back out there and get after it. So it is, it is the balance. Absolutely. Um, number four, don't be consumed by worldly distractions or fulfillment, but allow room for godly interruptions and plan changes. Hmm. Um, it's easy to get lured in by the things of the world. They look pleasing and often feel pleasing, but they don't satisfy. Um, Shane Bernard one time said, you know, the things of this world leave us appetized at best because they don't satisfy. Yeah. But they're very pleasing and intriguing. Um, and when we, you know, when we go after those worldly things, um, like you, like we said earlier, it kind of contends, it starts to disciple you, it starts to make you something right. different. Um, but when we are in Christ and we seek our satisfaction in him, we start to want worldly things less. Mm. Um, I like how David Platt says it. When we truly come to Christ, our thirst is quenched by the fountain of life and our hunger is filled with the bread of heaven. Uh, we discover that Jesus is the supreme source of satisfaction and we want nothing apart from him. We realize that he is better than all the pleasures, pursuits, and possessions of this world combined. As we trust in Christ, he transforms our tastes in such a way that we begin to love the things of God that we once hated, and we begin to hate the things of this world that we once loved. Mm. I just, I, I, that's what I long for. I want to, not that I want to hate the world, hate the people. That's not what he's saying. Right. It's, I want to hate that my desire for those worldly things that are not of him. Mm. Like in, in the beginning, the more we, we cling to him, the more we run after him, the more we pursue Christ his wants become our wants. His yeah. desires become our desires. Mm. And that's transformative. Yeah. Not only internally, but, but in our 
our work, our mission work mm, uh, in the field. So, and lastly, uh, don't lose heart. Uh, Paul, Galatians six nine and ten. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Um, you know, we're not Jesus; we're going to fail, but there's grace. Uh, there's hope. So persevere, keep fighting the good fight, keep the faith. As we talk about these heavy things coming up, don't lose heart if you're bad at them, because we all are in yeah, some way. That's so right. hopefully it'll be hopefully it'll be informative and enlightening, but also encouraging, and we'll try to give some good takeaways and application for you along the way. Uh, but the reward is worth it, so persevere. Amen. That's good stuff, man. Well, guys, we want to encourage you. Hang in there. Um, we aim to give you tools to be salty. Uh, and full of light so that we can bring the kingdom of God to bear in our world. Theology in the dirt is the whole idea that we would get down and wallow around in these things so that we can get used to making disciples. And so part of discipleship is teaching people to obey everything God's commanded and God speaks to everything either directly or indirectly. And we're going to practice that. So, I'm fired up about it. We hope you guys are too, man. We appreciate uh, you guys listening and particularly those who support this podcast on a monthly basis by giving. That's a new thing for us. Uh, It means people are listening. It's reaching folks and they find it useful enough to drop us some money. Um, And so hopefully we'll be able to to start doing some more things. Uh, Got some plans for the future. Hopefully a little more studio uh, upgrade in the not too distant future. Maybe be able to add some video along the way. Some fun things happening. So we appreciate you guys partnering with us. Um, We're grateful, and uh, you guys keep doing the good stuff. Keep fighting the good fight. Let us know if you have any questions, anything you want us to talk about in regard to the Christian life, theologyinthedirt at gmail.com. You can send it right there. We'll hit it. Y'all have a great day. Talk to you later. Out.